Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. I'm from 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the roof. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and this thing's a pull out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do who would do whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount. Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of, of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. This is the conclusion of our two-part special on Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham. If you haven't listened to part one and you want any of this to make sense, we recommend you listen to that one first. Murder-adjacent Dulcie Markham was the darling of the Australian underworld. Known as Pretty Dulcie and Dainty Dulcie, she also became known in the media as the Angel of Death and the Black Widow. As the years went by, Dulcie lost more of her boyfriends and husbands to shootings and stabbings. Dulcie definitely had a type, and it was only a matter of time before she herself would be targeted. In the end, Australia's most beautiful bad woman had to find an escape from this cycle of violence. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saravan. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up terrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. Yeah, because murder ain't funny. No. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, you could go to our website for details, that's bloodymurderpodcast.com, or you could search for us on Patreon. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our provocative and shockingly awesome first season, and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As a patron, you'll also have access to exclusive patron-only episodes, where we pretty much do what we do in the regular episodes, but with much more cowbell. A lot more cowbell. Mm, Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges, and levels $10 and above get a selection of bloody legendary merchandise. All right, Tara, 
let's get murdery. In part one, we learnt of Dulcie Markham's humble beginnings in the streets of outer Sydney. At 15, she ran away from home and started her career as a sex worker under the guidance of Sydney underworld queen Tilly Devine. The seed was planted for Dulcie's reputation as an angel of death after her boyfriend, Cecil Scotty McCormack, was stabbed to death by a rival for Dulcie's affections in 1931. At the coroner's inquest into his murder, glamorous Dulcie became a media sensation. The next lover to fall to Dulcie's so-called curse was a gent by the name of Arthur Taplin. He was gunned down in a Melbourne pub. He had been described in court as a worst class of criminal. The following year, Dulcie's new beau, Guido Galetti, was shot dead at a house party in Woolloomooloo. According to the Townsville Daily Bulletin, he had previously been shot on five occasions but survived each time and he frequently boasted no gun would ever kill him. I guess he got that wrong. Back in Melbourne by 1940, Dulcie started dating gangster Frederick James Anderson who went by the nickname of Paddles, so named for his enormous... Feet... Paddles shot and killed rival John Abrahams outside a house in Collingwood. He was arrested and tried but acquitted due to lack of evidence. Ah, the underworld code of silence strikes again? Indeed. Next to die was the husband of Dulcie, Frank the prettiest boy in gangland Bowen, whom she'd married back in 1936. He fell in a wild brawl and gunfight in King's Cross. By 1940, murder-adjacent Dulcie had lost three lovers and a husband to underworld violence, but the so-called angel of death and hoodoo girl was to see even more pain and loss in the years to come. We continue our story in 1942, with World War II in full swing. Thousands of Australian troops have been shipped off to Europe, the Middle East and the Mediterranean to fight the axis of evil. The previous year, the United States had joined the fight after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbour. Wanting to win the battle for the Pacific region, US forces set up a staging base in Brisbane with smaller bases in Melbourne and Sydney. Between 1941 and 1943, some 100,000 American troops arrived in Australia. By the end of the war, over 1 million US servicemen had passed through the land of kangaroos and drop bears. These American soldiers were paid better than their Australian counterparts. An American private received £17 a month compared to the £9 a month that Aussie diggers got. According to Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham, Australia's most beautiful bad woman, by Lee Straw, American troops were commonly referred to by the locals as overpaid, oversexed and over here. This was a boon for sex workers all over the country. New brothels popped up in all the big cities and high-class sex workers like Dulcie flitted about the country providing companionship to wealthy American officers. Basing herself in the seaside suburb of Sin, St Kilda, Dulcie was being kept by her new boyfriend, James Arthur Williams, who happened to be a married man. Kept? Do you mean pimped out? Yeah, yeah, I mean pimped out. But Melbourne coppers had their eye on Dulcie and she was arrested for soliciting sex from an undercover policeman. The cops were furious when the case was thrown out of court, with the magistrate siding with Dulcie, saying that it was the cop that came on to her. Dulcie claimed she'd asked if he was a cop, to which he replied, I'm just a Gippsland boy. And you know what? He could have been both. Oh, I don't know. It's highly unlikely. No, it isn't. (laughs) Now the Melbourne coppers had it in for her. 
Later that same month, Dulcie was convicted of loitering, soliciting and using indecent language. She paid a fine and was released. Soon afterwards, Dulcie and James relocated to Queensland, landing in the notorious Terrace Street in New Farm. According to author Lee Straw, Terrace Street was a well-known strip of brothels during World War II, with children told not to walk along it on their way to school. Dulcie and James added sly grog to their house of ill repute and made truckloads of money, cashing in on the thirstiness and horniness of troops at a nearby US Marine base. Sometime in 1942, Dulcie gave birth to a daughter. Her name is not known, but the baby is mentioned in court documents from 1944, and in 1946, Dulcie told a Truth newspaper reporter how moving around so often was hard on her young daughter. Was James Williams the father? Well, we just don't know, Tara. Her daughter could still be alive today, but without a birth certificate and a name, historians haven't been able to track her down, and maybe she prefers it that way. Yeah. While Dulcie was running a brothel, doing her own sex work, selling illegal alcohol and raising a child, her maybe baby daddy James was expanding his criminal portfolio by indulging in a spot of grand larceny. In 1943, light-fingered James was busted when he thieved a rather large amount of booze from a storeroom of the Exchange Hotel in Brisbane. That year saw Dulcie also being arrested for theft. Pretty Dulcie was accused of stealing a diamond ring and moving a safe out of a residence of a well-known Brisbane madam by the name of Nancy Ricardo. At trial, a police prosecutor called Dulcie the Queen of the Underworld in Brisbane. Do you think it came with a sash and a tiara? I hope so. I hope so too. But before the trial finished, Dulcie and James scampered, escaping to Sydney. In their absence, they were both found guilty of theft. Dulcie copped one month in prison and James scored 18. If they ever showed their faces in Queensland again, they would be locked up. <laughs> yeah, me too. Ah, I think that's true for most people. Yeah, actually. Now in Sydney, the pair quickly got into some extra trouble. James got busted stealing more than 3,000 food ration books and 2,000 clothing ration books from a Commonwealth distribution centre. According to the Truth newspaper in Sydney, his lawyer blamed the crime on Dulcie, attributing it to the decline and fall of a married man from the path of fidelity and honesty. This was not the first time Dulcie was cast as a fallen woman bringing about the downfall of a married man, and it would certainly not be the last. Ah, the femme fatale, the siren, leading good men astray, convincing them to leave their wives and honest jobs for a life of crime. <laughs> Sounds like a load of horseshit to me. It sure does, Tara. James was already a career criminal. <laughs> yeah, huh? Needless to say, Dulcie was not the least bit impressed with this beautiful, bad woman and homewrecker image she was given by the press. Before the trial was over, Dulcie kicked James to the curb. James was later found guilty and got 18 months prison time. It didn't take long for Dulcie to move on though, Tara. Donald the Duck Day was a former jockey who was originally from South Australia. Why did they call him the Duck? Because he dressed like a sailor but with no pants on. <laughs> Maybe he took a whole bunch of photos of himself pouting with his duck lips. He had a beak and shat and pissed out of the one hole. Oh, a cloaca. Possibly. Or maybe because he was named Donald. I guess we'll never know. I'm going with option A. <laughs> Sailor suit, no pants. Uh, that sounds about right. Anyway, the duck was married to a lady by the name of Irene. Together they ran a couple of brothels in King's Cross. Dulcie worked in one of these houses of ill fame and was also getting very cosy with the duck. 
What about Irene? It appears that Irene did not care. Well, you know how the old saying goes, once you go duck, you don't give a fuck. I've never heard that before. (laughs) That's because I made it up just then. The duck had also diversified his criminal activities, running two very lucrative sly grog shops, partnering with a high-profile doctor, Reginald Stewart-Jones. Ah, the duck and the quack. I like it. Australia's firstly named gangster, Chow Hayes, was a duck's muscle and red right hand. Chow comes up a lot in this story. He sure does. He was quite prolific, quite the hard worker. Hmm. The Duck and Dr Reggie kept a lot of their inventory of illegal booze on the Doctor's rather large and fancy yacht. When a rival gang decided to move in on their territory, they first attacked the boat full of grog, meaning to steal it. They were not expecting to find the Duck and Dr Reggie on board, and a gunfight ensued. The Duck escaped. He leapt off the yacht, opened his wings and took flight, soaring majestically over Sydney Harbour. Quack. You mean quack? What happened to the quack? Yeah, what, what, what did happen to the quack? Dr Reggie copped a bullet in the chest. It was touch and go there for a while, Tara, but he survived. With a target painted firmly on the duck's back, our fine feathered friend went into hiding. Quack. Do you even know what animals sound like? Like, what does a cow do, you reckon? Moop. Hmm, point proven. The duck's enemies managed to find him, though. On January 28, 1945, cops were called out to a brothel in Crown Street, Darlinghurst, and here they found Donald the duck lying on a bed covered in blood. The duck was very dead. He had many bullets in him. It wasn't pretty, with the duck having most of his face blown off, as well as being shot several times in the chest and legs. At first, the duck's wife Irene was implicated in his killing, but later a man named Keith Kitchener Hull was arrested and subsequently charged with the murder. Hull was tried, but found not guilty after claiming self-defence. Witnesses had testified that the duck had gone to the brothel to kill Hull. Keith Hull claimed that when the duck drew his pistol on him, he grabbed it and it just went off. Several times. Exactly. In July 1945, the Perth Mirror newspaper perpetuated Dulcie's angel of death mythos. They wrote, In the palm of her beautiful white hand, men dance to the tune she calls. And the tune she calls is death! Year in, year out, it seems, this glamorous siren of the underworld dawdles on death's doorstep. And one after another, the men who have loved her have met a tragic end. Dulcie was also reported to be heartbroken by the death of her beloved duck. Keith Hull and his wife Valma moved down south to Melbourne soon after his acquittal, possibly to avoid reprisals for the much-loved duck's murder. Was it a coincidence that Dulcie soon followed? Well, maybe not. But before we talk about that, let me introduce you to Dulcie's new racket. Mm, Please do. After Dulcie moved to Melbourne, she found a new way to make money. Illegal gambling. Operating out of the back rooms of hotels and private houses, they came to be known as Baccarat schools. Here, they could take money from suckers three ways. Sly grog, sexy time, hey baby, and of course, gambling. All under the one roof. Genius! A few months after Dulcie's arrival in Melbourne, an all-out war had erupted over who controlled these Baccarat schools. Dulcie's profile rose again after a well-known underworld figure and one of her lovers, Leslie Scotland Yard Walkerton, was gunned down in Richmond on September 12, 1945. Why'd they call him Scotland Yard? He liked detective novels. Oh, and maybe he didn't like being called Leslie. Probably. 
Leslie was peppered with a shotgun at close range while he was trying to put air back into his flat tyre, which had possibly been punctured to render him with no escape. He died the next day. With her name and photo published in every newspaper in Melbourne, Dulcie decided to move on and for the first time Pretty Dulcie headed west to the notorious Rose Street in Perth, Western Australia. Why was it notorious? As in tell your kids not to walk to school that way. You know, too many sex workers. Or not enough. Who knows? At 3am on June 22nd, 1946, vice cops raided a house at 226 Rose Street in Perth. They suspected it was being run as a bordello. Police were also on the lookout for two criminals from the eastern state said to be residing there. Among the dozens of women arrested was the madam of the establishment, a blonde vixen by the name of Deanne Lee Bowen, who was charged with keeping a house of ill fame and, of course, the catch-all charge of vagrancy. Was Deanne Lee Bowen actually Dulcie Markham? Bingo. And it didn't take long for police or the press to see through Dulcie's subterfuge. In court, the flashbulbs popped and Dulcie smiled at the reporters as she fixed her blonde curls in place. Perth's Daily News described her as a pin-up girl, baby-faced and a notorious member of Sydney's underworld. Australia's most beautiful bad woman was the talk of the town and not much of it was good. After Dulcie assured the magistrate she would be leaving Perth, he fined her £15 and released her. Dulcie made her way back to Melbourne with vengeance on her mind. Vengeance? For the duck. She wanted to avenge his murder. Fair enough. Dulcie settled in a little worker's cottage at 55 Faulkner Street, St Kilda. Guess who else lived in St Kilda? I don't know. Sir Tony Robinson? Baldrick? No, Keith Hull, the philandering duck murderer. Oh, that makes more sense. Soon after moving to St Kilda, Dulcie's house in Faulkner Street became a hangout for major underworld identities. Imaginatively known as Dulcie's Place, standover men, sly groggers, armed robbers, pimps, sex workers, circus folk, podcasters and a whole bunch of other unsavoury characters met there. Like Cambo. Oh yeah, he loved it there. Sounds lovely. Yes, very bohemian. There is a well-known story of Dulcie's time in St Kilda that is still apparently told by old timers today. Oh, well, you're an old timer. Do tell then. Dulcie was arrested outside a hotel dressed only in her Reg Grundies. Her undies. Yes, she was not arrested for that though, Tara. The cops grabbed her because she was chasing a man down the street while wielding a rather large axe. When asked to explain herself, she told the startled police... The bastard insulted me about price. Mm, Sounds very Dulcie. Yeah, it sure does. Meanwhile, Dulcie had taken a new lover, a handsome gent called Ernie Martin. Ernie didn't live with Dulcie. He lived in Punt Road, Richmond. Now, Ernie had an identical twin brother named Charlie who did live with Dulcie. Mm, That's confusing. I know. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. It sounds like a sitcom starring Rob Schneider. Yeah, exactly my point. He plays both roles. Oh, he plays all the parts. Also living at the Faulkner Street house were gunman and extortionist Norm Bradshaw and Freddie Harrison, who ran a few gambling houses. Baccarat schools. That's correct, sir. It was rumoured that Norm Bradshaw was somehow involved in the murder of Dulcie's former lover, don't call me Leslie, call me Scotland Yard, Wilkerton. Dulcie must have known this. Whether it bothered her or not, we'll never know. What we do know is by this time Dulcie was very well versed in navigating the complex and volatile relationships the criminal underworld presented to her. We'll be back with the conclusion of Dulcie Markham, Angel of Death, after this. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So Valentine's Day is coming up soon, Barney. But it won't be July 23rd for months. We've been over this before, dude. Valentine's Day is February 14th. This year? Every year. Do you think my girlfriend will get me a present? Maybe. What would you want her to get you? Roses are red, violets are blue, get manscaped as a gift for V-Day and he'll say I love you. Oh, that's simple, is it? It is. And we can help our listeners out, Tara. Well, that's true. Our mates at Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming, are here to give you the perfect gift for the man in your life. Balls! Two million men are already trusting Manscaped products to groom, coif and polish their downstairs area, and you can make sure your man is one of them. Can't think of what to get him for Valentine's Day this year? Get the gift that's for you and for him. Like, seriously, ladies, this is a win for us too. I've had some trouble in the past trying to manscape myself before a date with a simple plastic razor. Was that the date that ended with the woman bandaging up little Barney and the boys? Yeah, it sure was. It doesn't sound very sexy to me. It sure wasn't. Nobody wants their manscaping efforts to be bloody murder. Sometimes in a pants-off sensual situation, it can be a bit like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Hey, baby, she's talking about seven is bush. You know it. And just FYI, fellas, the needle looks a lot bigger if you weed-whack that haystack. The best way to get started is with the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. It's full of the best products to keep him looking, smelling and feeling nice for both of you. The Perfect Package 3.0 is led by their revolutionary third-generation Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer, which has advanced skin-safe technology mm, and features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. That's a lifesaver for little Barney and the boys. It's also waterproof, so we can use it in the shower, which prevents a mess on the bathroom floor and in the sink. Not having to ask him to clean it up afterwards will certainly help Cupid's arrow fly further. I hate to be indelicate because I'm a very classy man, Tara, but, well, nobody is actually a fan of sweaty ball odour. That's why I am thankful for their Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver. These products keep little Barney and the boys from sweating, smelling and sticking. The Crop Preserver is a deodorant. Is it the ball kind? You know it is. Man, you've been waiting decades for that joke to finally pay off, haven't you? I certainly have. Was it worth the wait? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, if your sack is whack or your love blob slobs and you need to give your undercarriage a bit of a house, your father... These products are perfect for that and they smell amazing. Seriously, uh, they have an attractive masculine scent that will certainly help set the mood to, hey, baby, I've been sniffing the ball deodorant Manscaped sent me a lot. What, off your boyfriend's How's Your Father? No, from the bottle. I don't want to ruin his Valentine's Day surprise. Indeed. These formulations are all vegan, cruelty-free, dye-free, sulfate-free and paraben-free so you know his manhood will be in good hands as well as yours. The scent will take your breath away. Hear this? (gasps) That was my breath being taken away. This perfect package also comes with a pair of manscaped boxer briefs that'll keep his meat and two veg feeling fresh all day long. Valentine's Day is a great time to upgrade those old grungy undies to these swamp crotch repellent boxes. 
So instead of a box of chocolates or a pet teacup pig, give him a box of the best products for his male grooming needs to spice up your Valentine's Day. Balls! Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BLOODYMURDER at manscaped.com. Ladies, this is a perfect gift for you and your man. And trust me, he will thank you. And fellas, your balls will thank you. What, by like sending you a thank you card? That's unlikely. Mine are so thrilled, I'm pretty sure they will, Tara. Balls! Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BLOODYMURDER, that's one word, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code BLOODYMURDER. Happy Valentine's Day from our mates at Manscaped. By the way, the discount isn't just for Valentine's Day. It will be valid for 30 days from February the 8th. Yeah, I mean, you can get the stuff yourself if you don't think your girlfriend or you don't have a girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. You, you, know? could just, you could be independent about it. I might need a few. I might want to, you know, actually, I might just, just put my leg up here and uh, I'll just... Oh, dude, oh. not while we're podcasting. Oh, yeah, it's, no, no. I just a, needed to give it a touch-up. Okay. That's I, much better. I, I feel like that's something you should do in your private time, Barney. Now my love blobs look like Jason Statham and Patrick Stewart snogging. <laughs> I accidentally saw them, and they do. Hey, Barney, what time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. Hooray! True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, ball deodorant, or just about (laughs) anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed scrotum uh, itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from longtime contributor Leah Heinrich, and she wants to tell us about the documentary Seduced. And she sent in a recording, so let's listen. Excellent. We love it when people do that. Hi, Tara and Barney and everyone. Thought I'd give you another true crime nerd time. If you think cults are a thing of the past like I did, think again. Before watching Seduced inside the Nexium cult, I thought cults like this were relegated to religious nutters and people like Jim Jones in the 1970s. But I was very, very wrong. After watching Seduced, I found myself once again extremely fucking angry at a white middle-aged man who thought he was God's gift to everyone, had an ego the size of Vesuvius, could do nothing wrong and wanted as much sex as was humanly possible while lying to everyone around him by saying he was celibate. Totally gross, disgusting and aneurysm-inducing. Fuck, I'm as angry as I was when I watched the Jeffrey Epstein doco. Seduced is a four-part documentary that you can watch on Stan in Australia, Stars in the US and Amazon in the UK. It tells the story of India Oxenberg, who's the daughter of dynasty actor Catherine Oxenberg, who spent seven years up to 2016 caught up in the modern-day sex slave cult of Nexium. India tells her story about being on the inside and how the cult manipulated and groomed her into staying And Catherine tells hers about being on the outside and desperately trying to get her daughter out. The most amazing thing about this doco is the strength of the women who left the cult and then helped the FBI and prosecutors take down the cult leader, Keith Raniere, who was an utter piece of shit. He created what was essentially a multi-level marketing sex business where recruits were given challenges to seduce him, give him collateral like nude photos that he could then blackmail them with, and ultimately brand them with his initials. 
Yes, literally brand them with a hot iron just above their pelvic area. Ranieri was enabled by the people around him who, while also victims themselves, protected Ranieri, recruited women for him and ultimately committed extremely serious crimes just like their leader. I really loved this doco series, even though it was harrowing to listen to what these women went through. I especially loved how it included interviews with cult experts, expert psychologists and trauma experts experts who all helped explain how people get sucked into cults and why they stay. They also talk a lot about coercive control, something that I've been researching and reading about for a long time. Since the doco was filmed in October last year, Ranieri has been sentenced to 120 years in jail, basically a life sentence given he is now around 60. His accomplices, one of whom was Smallville actor Alison Mack, were also sentenced to jail terms of between six and 20 years. Thank fuck for that. The assholes that helped and bankrolled Ranieri deserve more than that, but it's something at least. I highly recommended, recommend Seduce, so check it out. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Leah. That doco is called Seduced. Sounds very interesting. Mm. The details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. How can it be February already? I'm not convinced it is. How's your mental health going so far this year? Are you coping okay with the things happening in your life and the world? Or do you feel a bit defeated, even though the year has only just begun? Do you want to make changes in your life, but you're not sure where to even start? We're both big believers in therapy, and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. And you can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to leave the comfort of your own home. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in many areas such as trauma, anger, sleeping problems, anxiety and relationships. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they've been recruiting additional counsellors in all states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. And if you don't believe us, you can check out the tons of positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of Dulcie Markham, Angel of Death. In July 1947, Charlie Martin, twin brother of Dulcie's boyfriend, Ernie, shot Keith Hull in Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. Two bullets ripped through his chest, one narrowly missing his heart. He was taken to hospital and was not expected to live, but somehow he survived. Now, of course, Keith Hull was on Dulcie's shit list after he had killed Donald the Duck Day. Was this attack at the behest of Dulcie? 
Probably. Charlie Martin and another man, Charles Barrett, were arrested and charged with attempted murder. Both men were later acquitted on the grounds of (laughs) self-defence. Later that same month that Keith Hull was shot, his wife Velma had her life threatened by Charlie's twin brother Ernie and Dulcie as payback for the death of the duck. On August 9th, both were arrested and charged with threatening to kill. Three weeks later, Dulcie appeared in court dressed in a smart black dress with a silver fox fur over her shoulders. As usual, court reporters drooled, panted and described her as beautiful. Police alleged that Dulcie was a cocaine fiend who went nuts when she drank, but they did not have any evidence. That combined with the underworld's code of silence meant both Dulcie and Ernie were acquitted. Just before Christmas that same year, Dulcie was a passenger in a taxi when the vehicle crashed into a fence. Taken to the Alfred Hospital with a fractured pelvis, Dulcie refused treatment and signed herself out. That's a particularly bad injury for someone in her line of work to suffer. It is, and it will come back to haunt her in later years. Mm. By 1950, Dulcie had parted ways with the Martin brothers. Who had changed their surname to Kemp and started a band called Spandau Ballet. That's not true. Oh, no it isn't, is it? I'm sorry about that, everybody. Yeah, yeah, don't do it again. One story of her time in St Kilda was told by author and actor Frank Howson to writer Lee Straw about when his father witnessed a murder. Frank and his parents lived next door to Dulcie in the early 1950s. Frank's parents were awoken one night to a spot of biffo outside their bedroom window. Looking through the blinds at the altercation, Frank's father Jack saw Dulcie's housemate Norm Bradshaw punch a man to the ground. As Norm started walking away with another man, the bloke on the ground had to have the last word. Norm, on hearing this slight, turned around, walked back and shot him dead. Not wanting to have anything to do with this, Jack Housen moved the bedroom furniture from the front room to the back room and moved the lounge room furniture to the front room. When police called around the next day and asked if he'd heard anything, he had plausible deniability, claiming he was asleep in the back room and didn't hear a thing. The coppers checked his house, confirmed this and simply left. Norm Bradshaw also visited Frank's father, asking him how he'd been sleeping lately. Like a baby, he told Norm. Norm told Jack Housen, that's all I wanted to know. Thanks, Jackie. Have a nice day. Right through the early 1950s, Dulcie kept busy raking up many criminal charges, including accosting for prostitution, offensive behaviour, using insulting language and theft. I do enjoy her lifelong commitment to lady swears. Each time she was arrested, each time she was arrested, she fluttered her eyelashes and managed to avoid jail time. In 1951, the notorious Walsh brothers started frequenting Dulcie's St Kilda home. Desmond and Gavin Walsh were big in the Melbourne boxing scene but were also cruel, vicious standover men who enjoyed a bit of thieving, mostly employing the smash-and-grab method. 22-year-old Gavin smashed and grabbed Dulcie's heart. Nice segue. Thanks. So how old is Dulcie now? She's 37. Ah, she likes the green bananas. She does. Just like the Martin brothers, Desmond lived with Dulcie and Dulcie's lover, Gavin, lived elsewhere. What? I don't understand all of this living with your lover's brother's business. I can't explain it. Maybe it's a kink of some kind. The day of September 25th, 1951 was much like any other day for Dulcie. She woke at lunchtime, had breakfast, tidied herself up and was at the pub by 3pm. 
Desmond met her there after he finished work and they enjoyed many beers. At 6pm, the pair walked in a zigzag manner back to her Faulkner Street house where they were met by Gavin, who was bearing gifts, a bottle of brandy and a big-ass bag of cocaine. The trio partied into the night with the three passing out on Dulcie's bed. All were awoken by a knock on the door. Dulcie's boy toy Gavin answered. Dulcie and Desmond heard three shots ring out and Gavin staggered back into the bedroom with a bullet in his gut and collapsed by the wardrobe. In strolled Dulcie's former lover, Ernie Martin, gun in hand. He walked over to the wincing Gavin and shot him again. Ernie then turned his pistol towards Dulcie and shot her three times. Desmond tried to grab the gun from Ernie and copped a bullet in the hand. Ernie Martin then fled to a waiting car and made his escape. Dulcie had bullet wounds in her legs and hips, with one resulting in a shattered femur. Gavin was in worse shape. The trio were rushed in an ambulance to the Alfred Hospital. Gavin Walsh died at 1.30am the next morning. Dulcie and Desmond both identified Ernie Martin to police as their attacker. In November 1951, Dulcie made her most dramatic and sensational court appearance to date. There to testify against Ernie Martin, Dulcie arrived by ambulance to a media circus. Wheeled in on a stretcher with a tartan blanket covering her legs, she clutched a packet of cigarettes in her hands and smiled for the cameras. In a twist that everyone should have seen coming, Dulcie told the packed courtroom that she had not seen who had shot at her and claimed she had been asleep at the time of the attack. That's not what she told the police. No, it isn't. With no corroborating evidence to Desmond's testimony, the prosecution's case crashed, caught fire and burned. Ernie Martin was acquitted. According to Angel of Death, Dulcie Markham, Australia's most beautiful bad woman, by Lee Straw, after Dulcie was chastised by the magistrate for her false testimony, she barked back at him, I'm not going to forgive anybody and I'm not going to cover for anybody. Under World Code of Silence, snitches get stitches. Indeed. But guess what? A month later, Dulcie got married. What? Who? Her second marriage was to a sly grogger and gambling man, Leonard Retta Lewis. Well known in criminal circles in both Melbourne and Sydney, Retta had an extensive rap sheet for violent crime. What could possibly go wrong? Well, probably similar stuff to before. Sounds likely. Retta and Dulcie were married in Dulcie's front bedroom in St Kilda. The same room where Gavin was killed? Uh-huh. You see, Dulcie, with her shattered hip still in plaster, was bedridden. There are a lot of photos of their special romantic day as they ensured that the press were invited. The Truth newspaper in Sydney reported that the ceremony was officiated by the Reverend Perkins, a Church of England minister, and was attended by 25 guests with about 100 onlookers outside. Apparently detectives mingled with the crowd. Dulcie told reporters, I am very happy. Redder, sitting on Dulcie's bed beside her, told them, I have married her for life and love. I will keep her okay. No police will touch her any longer. The Truth newspaper also reported that the best man sang a song called You Will Always Hurt the One You Love. <laughs> Appropriate. That's Taylor Swift, right? Uh, sure, why not? Sounds about right. As a wedding present, the Victorian police raided their home late that night and searched it. Oh, how thoughtful. <sighs> well, I don't think that was on the registry, was it? Still in extreme pain, over the next few months, Dulcie quietly convalesced and stayed out of trouble. Really? Nah. Dulcie was a regular fixture at the pub down the road from her house, the Prince Charles. 
Here, with her leg in plaster propped up on a chair, she received many a free beer from male and female admirers. Dainty Dulcie was now known across the country and some would seek her out to bathe in her reputed beauty. Dulcie would spot these looky-loos and tell them in no uncertain terms to fuck the fuck off. In January 1952, Dulcie was arrested by Detective Keith Stafford for using indecent language. What? No! Pearl Clutch. It's true, Tara. Detective Stafford told the court that Dulcie had been abusing people from her wheelchair while being (laughs) propelled around St Kilda. What's better than Lady Swears? Lady Swears on wheels! It's it's a great picture in your head, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I'm enjoying it very much. I'm thinking of doing it myself. Detective Stafford told the magistrate that when he asked her to stop, she unleashed language so severe and indecent he had to write it down. <laughs> when the magistrate asked what she had said, Detective Stafford blushed and said it was not fit for the court's ears. He passed the magistrate the note he had jotted down. The magistrate read it and cried out, Oh, my dear God! Dulcie received a rather large fine, which she paid. I want to know what she said, you know, for, like, research purposes, and so I can quote her. I think we all want to know what was (laughs) written on that note. In April, while Dulcie was visiting friends in Sydney, her new husband, Retta, was shot in the stomach while outside his parents' house in South Melbourne. He was rushed to hospital, and although the wound was life-threatening, he survived. Reporters tracked down Dulcie in Sydney, wanting to quiz her about her husband's shooting. Dulcie told them to go to hell and to fuck the fuck off. CIB consorting squad detectives also got wind of her stay and arrested Dulcie still on crutches in Surrey Hills. With an outstanding consorting charge, she was sentenced to serve six months in Long Bay Jail. G'day, Brucie. How you doing? How you going, Dulcie? Upon release, with her marriage now on the rocks, Dulcie decided to stay in Sydney. In the next year, Dulcie was convicted no less than 31 times for offensive behaviour. Whoa! Life goals! Of which I will now read out in full. Go on. No. In June 1953, Redder was shot again, this time in the back while he was walking along Spencer Street in Melbourne. Cowards! A bullet was removed from his spine and he survived, but once again he would not tell the police who his attackers were. By this time, Dulcie and Retta's marriage was well and truly over. Dulcie took a new lover, a low-level crim by the name of Neil Johnson. The relationship did not last, with the pair parting company a year later. Well, at least he wasn't shot. Yeah, no, that's unusual. I mean, he dodged a bullet, like literally. Yeah, but probably several. After this, Dulcie moved to a small one-bedroom flat in Bondi Beach. 1954 saw Dulcie receive more convictions for, amongst other things, providing false information on an application for a driver's licence. She already had multiple suspensions for driving whilst drunk and driving without a licence. In 1955, a violent incident affected Dulcie so severely that she decided to retire from criminal life. On January 11th, Dulcie was found below her second-storey balcony wincing in pain. She was hurt bad, with injuries including broken ribs and a pierced lung. Look, it's amazing that she actually survived. She told reporters from the Truth newspaper, There's nothing to it, dear. I simply rolled down a flight of stairs. I'm a very sick girl, but don't worry about me, honey. I'll come good. Rolled down a flight of stairs to outside under her balcony. Yeah, the underworld code of silence strikes again. 
Newspapers all over the country reported that Dulcie was attacked and thrown off her balcony. Perth's Mirror newspaper ran with the headline, Did she fall or was she pushed? Everyone, it seemed, knew the answer to that question. Dulcie, deeply affected by being hurled more than 20 feet to the concrete below, decided to retire from public life. In 1957, 41-year-old Dulcie appeared for the last time in court, facing a charge of soliciting and vagrancy. Dulcie told the magistrate she was struggling and had sold the last of her jewels and furs to survive. Veteran crime reporter Bill Jenkins wrote in the Truth newspaper, Although her once glamorous looks had faded, she could still create a sensation. Oh, poor geriatric 41-year-old Dulcie and her faded looks. Gag. He can fuck the fuck off. Yeah, he can. Dulcie paid the fine and told reporters on her way out that they would not be seeing her again. And just like smoke, Dulcie was gone. Crime reporter Bill Jenkins tracked her down many years later after she married for the third and final time in 1972. Well and truly out of the underworld life, Dulcie married law-abiding straight man Martin Rooney, a former sailor. Jenkins described them as a loving couple and Dulcie the model housewife. That's like you, Barney. Sure is. It seemed that Dulcie was finally happy. Oh no, please tell me that's the end of the story. Despite successfully escaping the criminal life and media spotlight, it appeared fate had one final sensational and violent act to put upon pretty Dulcie. On the night of April 20th, 1976, Dulcie Markham died in a house fire. She'd been smoking in bed. After feeding their dogs, husband Martin came up the stairs of their modest Bondi house to find the bedroom ablaze. He couldn't save her. Australia's most beautiful badass woman was burnt beyond recognition. It seems Dulcie is remembered by most for losing so many husbands and lovers to gang violence, but I believe Dulcie would not only be remembered for her criminal activities and her striking beauty, but for her legacy of challenging the status quo, for shifting the ideas of female identity, and for forging ahead on her own and taking charge of her own destiny. And let's not forget her inspiring lady swears. I think it's incredibly amazing that she survived with all the violence around her. Same. I just want to know what was on that note. I really do too. It's interesting that 62-year-old Dulcie died a five-minute walk away from where she grew up in Waverley, which was the house that she ran away from at 15. Wow, what a survivor. Yeah, Dulcie fared a lot better than some of her counterparts, including her BFF Nellie Cameron. In 1953, Nellie put her head in the oven in her Darlinghurst apartment and turned on the gas. Underworld queens Tilly Devine and Kate Lee both went bankrupt and died in poverty. In fact, almost all of Dulcie's associates were eventually killed by gang violence. Except Chow Hayes. He lived to a ripe old age, didn't he? Yeah, Chow passed away in 1993 at the age of 81 which is like about a 1,000 years old in gangster years. <laughs> Whoa, what a story. Indeed, what a character. Hey, Tara, I have a question for you. Is it, would you like to go drink a beer? Because he answers yes. What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Well, I'm not really sure what Aussie As is, but I guess I'm going to find out. Oh, for God's sake, if you ever listened... Now, we haven't done a rogue poor story for a while, have we? It's been far too long, in my opinion. It seems people targeting a business or residence for defecation purposes is as Aussie as thongs, beers and drop bears. So here we go again. 
According to the NT News, a woman named Kristen installed a camera outside her house in Underdown Street, Gillen, after making the gruesome discovery of human faeces in several places on her front lawn. The unmotivated anus attacks began on December 11th of last year and have all occurred between midnight and 3am. His butt clock must be in a different time zone. (laughs) Yeah, those are not usual toilet hours to be keeping. Chrisa shared the footage she obtained of the man the NT News has dubbed the rogue hipster man-bun-wearing front yard pooer of Alice Springs. Catchy. Yeah, very. It shows a neatly dressed hipster with a man bun and a full beard entering Chris's yard and walking off camera to where a steaming heap of human droppings were later discovered. Chris said the rogue hipster man bun wearing front yard poo of Alice Springs had been taking a dump in her yard for nine nights in a row before she phoned the cops and they put out a call for witnesses to come forward. She told the NT News that the rogue pooer's poos had gotten more rogue and pooier as the days went by. Cruiser recalled that one morning she discovered it was kind of smeared in blobs, almost like he got between the tiles and mashed it in. So there's like one main shit and then just little squishy blobs. I think he's purposely squashed it in just to really piss me off. Pissed off by a pesky pooer? That's the name of my fourth album. Cruiser went on to say... Then there was one night where I thought he didn't have a shit. Next day I came out and I found two. One was an older one and it was being rained on and the other one was next to it, right in the middle of the yard there near my bird bath. So he's changed tactic because I left the windows wide open thinking maybe that'll deter him. But instead of deterring him, he's gone, I'm going to fucking shit right there in front of the windows. She left her windows open with a rogue poor on the loose. I'm guessing she had not watched the Night Stalker docuseries or, well, anything true crime anything. Chrisa said she had no friggin' idea why the hell she was the target of such a stinky smear campaign. She said, I don't have any personal enemies. There's no reason for it that I can think of. Chrisa added, he's so smooth and so calm. From the video, it almost looks like he does it for a profession. It looks like he's been doing this for a long time. Ah, so he's actually the professional rogue hipster man-bum-wearing front yard pooer of Alice Springs. Yes! Yes, he is. And um, interestingly enough, he looks a lot like my boyfriend's little brother. Um, I asked him what the likelihood of Josh heading to the Northern Territory to terrorise a woman with his bum gold was, and he said he thought it was highly unlikely. Highly unlikely, but not impossible. Yeah, nah. If last year taught us anything, it's that everything is possible. Anyway, if anyone has any information on the Bountiful Butt Bandit, please call the Northern Territory Police. And we're pretty sure it isn't Josho. But not 100% sure. No, that's not a percentage of surety that exists anymore. This brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to XXL Historian again from the United States. We've got Low569 from the USA. LBTX from Australia. And Steed Justice. Ooh, nay. <laughs> from the USA. We'd also like to thank the wonderful Lorraine for all the work she does running the Facebook group with me. Thanks, Lorraine. You're awesome. You know who else is awesome? Our patrons. We love them. We love them so much. We've been holding monthly giveaways. Our January prize was a very special one, a bloody murder tritone duffel bag. And the winner is Melissa Fraser. Congratulations. Our February prize is a keep kicking a gangster pricks bath mat. What? Do we even have those? We do. Woo. Made of microfiber foam for maximum plushiness and absorption. Mm. 
much like yourself, Tara. And it also features a non-skid back for safety. Much like yourself, Barney. <laughs> I do have a non-stick back for safety. <laughs> yes. For your chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a whole bunch of new Bloody Legends join our Patreon program, so thank you to Shannon Todd. Terry Bigham. Lynn. Just Lynn. Heather, the lovely Heather Ignash. Kim McKenzie. And Brendan McCaffrey. Thank you, Brendan. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to Stephen Potts for being a supportive friend who understands the challenges of the biz. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And who's buying the drinks this week? Jessica Cole. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. Very generous of you. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saravan. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcast, our IMDb listing, or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a poo on our front lawn oh. would still count. Oh, I don't know about that. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us deter the swamp crotch monsters. Balls! What if we want to encourage them? I'm sure that wouldn't be a struggle for you. Uh, you can follow us through our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news galleries, more episodes and links to our threadless merchandise. And to those people who hacked our website and I had to fix it up, you can go and get fucked. You can go and fuck the fuck off. Yeah. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So I was raining the other day, Tara, and I had to go and check the mail. And it was all wet outside, so I was going to the mailbox... And I had my socks on and I didn't want to put my shoes on, so I thought I'd just put my thongs on, oh, my flip-flops. And I got out there and there's my neighbour and she starts pointing and laughing at my feet. <laughs> and I tried to explain to her that I didn't want to get uh, my socks wet, but I didn't want to put the shoes on for just such a short trip, but she laughed at me anyway. Well, yeah, because it sounds like a lie. It sounds like you just always roll like that. I do not wear, <laughs> I do not wear socks with flip-flops. Well, clearly you do. It was a one-off. There's a witness to this. She's willing to testify in a court of public opinion. Oh, man. My God, you fuck one goat and just you just get known yeah, as a goat the, fucker for goats, the rest of your life. The other goats won't stop calling and asking for a date. <laughs> I don't know if it's that bad just wearing socks with flip-flops. It's not that bad, is it? My dad wears socks with Crocs because Crocs are an all-round the year shoe for my dad. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, I can't fault Vampire Bill on anything, really. Well, so. sometimes he wears snake-repelling... Uh, no, sometimes he wears snake-proof gumboots. That's when he's out prospecting for gold. True story. Oh, is he a detectorist? He's a total detectorist. I did not know that. Oh, yeah, loves a bit of it. Goes, oh. all, goes all around gnarly areas of Australia in his caravan, digging, digging for gold, detecting his ass off. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, he's pretty fun. My neighbourhood is getting increasingly weird, as you would know. Mm, you talk about it a lot. Well, yeah, that's because every time I leave the house, which is about once a day to go for a walk, I tend to encounter some kind of um, just psycho weirdness. Well, your toilet doesn't work, so you have to go to other people's front lawns at three in the, three in the morning, don't you? Uh, no, that's not me. That's my brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a trap, Barney. 
I was going to the supermarket on my way back from going for a walk and I, I walked past the tram stop and there was a couple of people sitting there and this one guy just started screaming, long legs, long legs, long legs, long legs, at me and after me. And I thought he was going to like chase me through the shopping centre and start trying to bite my legs. It wasn't a spider that, that had upset him? Uh, no, apparently it was me. Because, you know, if you're six foot one, it's just... Yeah, you're going to have long legs. It's just sort of a rule. I've never seen anyone get so fucking randomly excited about it well, before, but apparently it was quite something. Look, I've been meaning to tell you, and I hope this isn't a come, doesn't come as a shock to you, but your torso is unusually short really? for your legs. <laughs> well, maybe that's what this gentleman was trying to point out. Well, yeah, I mean, he could have said it in a nicer way. He sounded pretty excited. Like, it made me think of Sean Vincent Gillis, the objectifier that we covered in, the, in an episode a while oh, back. Yeah, yeah. Because he actually talked about, you know, a woman who he cut off her legs and kept them and stuff. And I was, that's, I just instantly went there because, of course, I did. This is what I spend my time doing, thinking about murder. So you're, yeah, no, that's good. You I mean your legs couldn't be a trophy? Um, they're worth souvenirin. They're worth souvenir. Is that a word? Uh, I don't know. I don't like the idea. It was just weird. It was it was so fucking weird. And, you know, also incredibly normal for my neighbourhood. Oh, I went to brunch with my friend Andrea the other day and uh, she pointed out to me a rapist who'd recently been released. So I was like, well, that's good. Get to know the rapists in your neighbourhood. Uh, yeah. That's yuck. I know it's yuck. But I was like, oh, okay, cool. Add him to the list of people to avoid when uh, you're walking down the street. Yeah. Uh, it'll, it'll cut you're you're just right. going to be like, that was enough of that. Enough ball talk, bitch. Is that, uh, what, you're, is that what you're fucking telling just me? Just pop my leg back up here and... Uh... Oh. <laughs> oh, no. Dude. Look how shiny they are, Tara. Uh, look, you have some spare... I'm not here often. Does it have to happen in front of so me? So shiny. Hang on, let me just get this bit here. There. Look at that. You can see uh, reflection in it. This is... I'm calling HR. Hello, HR. Mm, yes, Tara, this is Linda speaking. Linda, is it okay for a co-worker or a business partner to shave their balls in front of you? Well, in this company it is, Tara, as long as they're male. Well, there you go. Yeah, it didn't fucking help much. Thanks, HR. Well, they're on, the, they're on bloody murder's side, not on your side. They're not on the employee's mm, side. No, HR. They certainly aren't. In fact, I quite like it when the um, when my co-workers like to shave their, their nutsack in front of me. I think that's that's a quite good team-building exercise. I'm actually going to purchase uh, a dozen of these Manscaped products and just leave them around the break room so that people can groom themselves and, and just get a happier vibe in the workplace, Tara. On July 27th. <laughs> is that Valentine's Day? Is that when you think, think Valentine's Day I'm pretty Day sure is? that's Valentine's Day. <laughs> Are your balls going to be ready? Oh, shiny as fuck, man. Oh, you better yeah. see your reflection there. Oh, yeah. You'll bring a vision. Woo! Well, that went well. Pissed off by a pesky pooer? That's the name of my fourth album. Some people say the title track was the biggest banger off that album, but I'm also a fan of your love ballad, Those Jorts Won't Take Themselves Off, Baby. That song is based on a true story. Yeah, it's the personal depth that makes it so hauntingly beautiful. Could you sing a little bit of it for our listeners? Come lay down by the fire on my pesking rug sugar tits. It's not animal cruelty because the bear is alive and he loves it.
<laughs> Get relaxed and comfy, no time's a-wasting, but if you're feeling like me, those jorts must be chafing. That brought a tear to my eye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 